Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, October 8th, 2023. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Jenna Tessa Fox and Michael Portantier. Jenna has written about theater for many publications, including Playbill, Broadway World, Time Out, and HowlRound. She's a member of the League of Professional Theater Women and the Drama Desk and is a contributor to Broadway Radio. Hey, Jenna, welcome back. Thank you. It's wonderful to be back. How have you been? Oh, you know, we're doing well, and uh, you have been uh, traipsing around the world, having a a good time. (laughs) Have you uh, seen much theater in all your travels, or is it just strictly work? Oh, in my travels, it's pretty much strictly work, but fortunately, I can always come home. Well, you know, (laughs) home to the greatest city in the world. So they say. They should use that in a musical or something. In the greatest city in the world. (laughs) Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hi, hi. Um, We are continuing, by the way, to add new reviews to castalbumreviews.com written by me and others. And I just gave a glowing review to this new complete recording of Oklahoma that all our listeners should be aware of if they're not already. Um, But where was, uh, was it just a cast recording or was it based on a production? It's a London studio cast recording um, conducted by John Wilson with the Sinfonia of London. Mm. And uh, Curly is Nathaniel Hackman, who was in that, um, if you've seen that video uh, of the production, the concert, stage concert that John Wilson conducted at, um, I think at the Royal Albert Hall um, some years ago with uh, Robbie Fairchild as uh, Will Parker was in that one. And, uh, uh, and but uh, the only uh, the only lead um, from that who's on this studio recording is Nathaniel Hackman, who's really terrific. He had made a huge impression uh, when he sang They Call the Wind Mariah in Paint Your Wagon at Encore some years ago. Uh, but we've also got Sierra Bogus um, as Laurie. And uh, the rest of the people are, I guess, Brits that you wouldn't necessarily know their names, but uh, they're all really good, and the recording is this note complete, and the sound is fabulous, and the conducting is great, and so it's it's kind of a a must have for anybody who loves o- Oklahoma. That is uh, great. Did you uh, have you posted a review on the on the London cast recording of Guys and Dolls yet? Yes, the and that one? one that one was not quite as enthusiastic. <laughs> oh dear. Was it Charles that wrote but it? Or? Not terrible. No, no, I did that one too. I, I've been doing some, but we do have Charles uh Kirsch doing a lot of them now and this other fellow, Dan Rubens. Uh they both recently joined our stable of writers. Uh, so we're really we're really trying to um get them going. Uh, and really catch up with all the new stuff and also stuff that we had missed. So uh, we have a link to Cast Album Reviews in the show notes. 
So, you know, if you are a cast album review aficionado, perhaps you should get over there and check it out. Uh, London Cast 2023 Broadway Records. Uh, so um, we'll get everybody over there and check out cast album reviews. So let's see. We had some big news this week. Uh, we had like yes. dates and times and places. <laughs> For the upcoming Tony Awards in 2024, uh, going to be on Father's Day, uh, which um, usually Father's Day is like Broadway Bears, which is usually the Sunday after the Tony Awards. <laughs> no, that's Daddy's Day. Total difference. Oh, totally different. oh, that's. I thought that was that was what it was. <laughs> that's right. So the Tony Awards are going to come up in 2024, and they're going to be presented at the. Uh, Michael, help me out with it. It's I just call it the Coke, but what's it called? What's the official name of it? I I just I I don't use like to refer to it, so I, <laughs> I just I just call it the Coke. Also, yeah. Well, it's uh, Lincoln Center, and it's used to be called the New York State Theater. It's Correct. where ABT is, um, and uh, so I. Uh, 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 you know, the, at the crossroads of politics and the arts, as uh, Leonard Jacobs uh, <laughs> used to have uh, uh, be focused on in that area in his in his website. But it's, by the way, that it, it's the David H. Koch Theater. Ooh. The David he's H. One, H. Koch. Yeah, he's one of the Koch brothers who uh, mm-hmm. are notoriously um, well. Uh, their politics is not jibe with a lot of. <laughs> that uh, the politics of a lot of people in the theater world, let's put it that way. So um, that's an interesting development in itself that is being held there. I, I When I first read the announcement, I thought, well, couldn't they have done it at the Geffen Theater? I guess that's called the David H. Geffen Hall, uh, which is right across the plaza. But the thing is, they, they couldn't because aside from everything else, um, the Coke was originally built for the New York City Ballet and the New York City Opera. And so it has facilities for sets, you know, uh, flies, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, and, you know, obviously that's needed for a Tony Awards uh, presentation. Uh, but the the Geffen doesn't have any of that. It's basically a concert hall. There are, there's no there's no room there's no facilities for sets uh so that's why uh that's one reason why it's not at the geffen hmm. and i'd imagine there's a lot of scheduling around that and availability and things oh, like of that course, uh, of course yeah uh and one of the uh the big selling points is that the air conditioning probably works better than mm-hmm. the united palace in washington heights last year uh, i also compared <laughs> uh i compared the seating capacities of uh the various theaters where the Tonys have been in recent years. And as I think we all know, Radio City is something like 6,000, but um, the United Palace is 3,327. And uh, the Beacon is 2,600. And the Coke is 2,586. So just slightly less than the Beacon. Hmm. The tickets are going to be hard to come by. They're well, harder, there. yeah, yeah harder, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cutting a thousand people out of there, but uh, we have to, you know. I, I also, uh, I, I don't have hard data to back this up. I, I'm just thinking about it now. 
it seems like the opening schedule is much lighter than the past and smaller casts and smaller shows. Hmm. Do you, uh, I don't have any data about that. Do you guys have that same feeling or am I just off in left field? It does seem like that, but maybe with some exceptions. Uh, so, you know, hmm. uh, I'm wondering if they ever considered doing it at the Metropolitan Opera House, hmm. which is closer to 4,000 seats. I wonder if they even asked them about it. Hmm. Uh, so, well, who knows? I, again, I would, I would think it's mostly about... Uh, schedules there you know oh yeah 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 so we have in the official season schedule here let's see uh gray house once upon a one more time a come and gone just for us here lies love the cottage back to the future the shark has broken el mago pop which came and went pretty quickly it was just a limited six show or eight show or something like that uh pearly victorious melissa etheridge jaja's african hair braiding merrily we roll along gutenberg i need that what is i need that i don't know that Did he, oh, that's... Danny devito play yeah oh yeah that's right the american airlines yeah uh harmony spam a lot how to dance in ohio appropriate Prayer for the French Republic, Days of Wine and Roses, Doubt, The Notebook, Water for Elephants, Mary Jane, The Outsiders, The Wiz, Uncle Vanya, Mother Play. Those are the announced openings so far for this season. So once again, I am wrong. So certainly that's a lot of uh, a lot of stuff that is uh, opening during this, uh, this Tony Awards season. So see if we can fit everybody into the Coke. So, but, um, I, I, I've heard minor rumbling of protesting because it's at the Coke. I don't think that's ever going to, I don't think that's going to come to be. I so, don't think so. <laughs> but yeah, knows? I think yeah. that, you know, you know, as, uh, they said in the producers, Tony, 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 Tony. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> We will uh, keep you up to date, uh, but we have, what's the announcement? April 30th is the nominations are going to be announced. The uh, cutoff is April 25th, so five days earlier. And the official award ceremony, June 16th. So on CBS, but they haven't told us any of the details about the, <laughs> you know, which CBS and how it's, you know, if they're going to do the first hour on the streaming or what's going to happen there. But we'll we'll bring you all that information and uh, Matt and Grace will bring it to you on Today on Broadway uh, as well as we get more information. I don't expect we'll have more for a few months until after the new year. So first up in our review section, uh, Jenna and Michael got to see Melissa Etheridge's new show, Window. Uh, so, Jenna, why don't you get us started on Melissa Etheridge? Sure, sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Melissa Etheridge was pretty much the soundtrack of my college years. So getting to see her in a venue as intimate as Circle in the Square was a real, uh, real kick. Uh, and, mm -hmm. you know, my window sort of recreates the feel of being at a rock concert in some ways, but the vibe is balanced with uh, 
Etheridge's very casual style of storytelling. So it makes for a really personal evening. Uh, I know the show's been brewing for a while. It ran off Broadway a year ago. Uh, I didn't see it uh, back then, much to my regret. So I was really glad to catch it at Circle in the Square. Uh, I think it's running through mid November uh, or late November nineteenth. November nineteenth. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. So Etheridge uh, begins the show talking about how her whole life has been very dramatic. And she repeatedly mentions her love of Broadway musicals throughout it. it. It sort of feels like she needs to defend her presence on a Broadway stage. Mm-hmm. And I felt that kind of weakened the overall impact of the evening because, you know, Melissa Etheridge is famous for her very loud and powerful and passionate voice and for writing these songs that are you know, raw and demanding and uh, powerful and passionate to use those adjectives again. So, you know, the book, uh, Etheridge and her wife, Linda Wallam Etheridge, wrote the book together. For that book to constantly try to justify the show's existence just feels like a disservice to the strength and the determination of her musical legacy. It's a small quibble. I mean, for the most part, the book is the straightforward bio of Etheridge's life and her career with names redacted to protect the innocent and the not so innocent. Uh, she punctuates the stories with her songs, uh, sometimes performed on the main stage uh, circle in the square. Once again, has been reconfigured to a proscenium set. You never know what you're going to get when you walk in there. Um, and then sometimes she walks into the audience and there's a little platform in the middle of the theater so that the audience can surround her. Um, Etheridge is a skilled storyteller in her own right. She takes a very casual and relaxed tone throughout the show. I noticed a screen over the audience facing the proscenium side of the stage uh, with bullet points for each story that she was telling. So I was wondering how much of the book is actually formally scripted and how mm. much of it is Etheridge recalling her stories live in the moment. And she makes everything seem so effortless that I really can't tell if this, you know, a lot of it is just off the cuff remembering how this happened. And I also was wondering how much actual playing at the piano and guitar she does throughout the evening, because at several points, she stops playing. Uh, she will hand her guitar over to the roadie character who's played by <laughs> uh, Kate Owens, who doesn't get to speak, but manages to command the stage every time she's on it. So <laughs> cheers to Kate Owens. Um, or she'll step away from the piano, but then the music keeps going. I don't think there's an offstage band, so I don't know if Shannon Slayton's sound design was time to pick up when Etheridge stops playing live, but I got to say it was a little distracting, and it took me out of the moment every time that happened. I've just been wondering about that since I saw the show. and I Well, I think I can answer that if I, if oh, I can, can jump you? in. Yes, thank you. Please. She, she uses one of those things. I don't know what they're called, where you play something and you record it while you're playing and then you press a oh. button and then it keeps and then it keeps playing what you had been playing as like a vamp. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Do you wondering. know what those are called, James? 
I, I don't know what it's technically called. I call it a repeater. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that's it, Jenna. I, I'm sure she was playing live all the time. I, I thought so. I mean, it certainly yeah. sounded live, but then she stopped playing the guitar. Right. And I, how did you do that? Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> clearly, I am not as well diverse, uh, well diverse, well versed in uh, sound design as I ought to be. So, uh, okay. Thank you so much for explaining sure, that to me. Sure. I appreciate that. And another thing I've been wondering about is, uh, how Etheridge could tighten up the beginning of the show because the early movements, movements, moments. Oh my God. Why am I? This is after I've had coffee. Oh my God. <laughs> the earlier moments seem to move slower than the later parts as she talks about her childhood and her adolescence. On the other hand, it kind of feels wrong to want someone to pick up the pace when they're telling their own life story. By the time she's sharing stories about you know, campaigning for Bill Clinton and celebrating Janis Joplin in concert, she's got the audience in the palm of her hand. Um, you know, she's talking about some truly horrific tragedies she's lived through. I don't think anyone in the theater was even breathing. I know I was holding my breath. Uh, Amy Tinkham is the director. Her She keeps the energy up. She keeps the pace moving for so much of the show. So I really hope the somewhat slower beginning can be tightened up so it moves as well as the rest. Uh, and Abigail Rosen Holmes's lights uh, do a really great job of alternating between the blinding glare of a rock concert and then the intimate shadows of a traditional one-woman play. Uh, they also work very nicely with Eliz Olivia Sebesky's projections. Uh, those projections let us see moments from Etheridge's life as she talks about them. And they also recreate the uh, altered states of what she calls plant medicine that she promotes. And mm. uh, I kind of felt the, that promotion was one of the show's biggest challenges to overcome. Uh when she uses the show as a platform to promote cannabis and alternative medicines, it, it's not that her arguments aren't interesting or that I even disagree with them, but they really felt shoehorned in, especially mm. coming on the heels of some of the show's most powerful and dramatic moments. She goes from talking about overcoming truly horrible challenges to talking about how much she believes in alternative medicine and the two pieces just don't fit together dramatically. I really hope that's something else that can be worked on for future productions of the show. And I hope there are a lot of future productions of the show and that it tours uh, and gets a healthy post-Broadway life uh, after November. Um, wisely, Etheridge leaves her most popular song for the end of the show. She encourages the crowd to sing along with her. It is a wonderful, fun, communal moment that really evokes all the best parts of a rock concert in a very intimate setting. Uh, it gets the audience out smiling and on a really nice high. Uh, really enjoyed that. I, I hope the show introduces Etheridge's music and her accomplishments to a new generation who might not realize what a trailblazer she was just by being honest and being herself. Uh, she broke a lot of ground in addition to creating some really great songs, which it's wonderful to hear her perform them live. Uh, so it's wonderful to see her on a Broadway stage, 
singing some of her greatest hits and sharing her life story in such an intimate venue. I hope the show really does well. I hope it tours. And there's part of me that thinks, you know, 50 years from now, I could see other actors redoing the show and telling the story of her life and recreating the experience. So I hope it lives on, not just with her telling her own story, but passing it on to other performers to recreate it in the future. Okay, Michael, what did you think? Well, first, let me say I very much enjoyed it overall, not knowing if I would or what to expect. Uh, I, interestingly enough, Jenna, I was going to say the opposite. I think it's the really it's the second part of the show uh, to me that really, really needs tightening. And uh, and oh. I say that largely because I agree with what you said about all that time she spends talking about mm. plant-based medicines, which we should mention certainly includes cannabis. Um, she she's very pro <laughs> the use of of cannabis for um, pain management and and then and for medical purposes things like that. Um, so so that's why I felt that way. I, I thought the first half was very engaging. There was a lot of humor in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I I um, agree about the uh, production elements i uh i think the lighting and the projections and the sound all worked very well to tell the story uh, especially yeah. the projections and i um frankly it, the the show was more elaborate than i than i expected i i didn't think that it was going to be anywhere near um so so well produced uh so if people uh, you know, who worry about getting their money's worth in that sense. You really don't have anything to worry about. It, it doesn't feel cheap at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forget. I'm sorry. Where was the off-Broadway run? It's New World Stages. Yeah. So, I mean, I imagine all of that was pretty much the same there, but it, it looks really great at Circle in the Square. And by the way, I, I, I'm sure we can all guess that a, a, a major reason why uh, this is even happening is because K-pop which had been in that theater closed so quickly oh. uh, and they needed, they needed things to fill it. And so, I mean, who, I don't know who approached whom, but um, I'm sure that's why she's there. And I'm really glad that that worked out because I, I thought overall, as I say, I, I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, her story is very interesting. I learned a lot about her that I didn't know. Uh, and I didn't know much to begin with. Um, so I, I just wish it could be tightened up. I and I think maybe the director could have helped a little more with that. Um, although when you're directing a, you know, a person in their own basically one person show, it might be a little difficult to uh, be more firm in direction. Um, mm. It didn't help that um, the performance I went to. Uh, the intermission was proceeding and then suddenly we noticed there was sort of a commotion in one part of the house and there was a, a leak um, coming from the ceiling of the Ooh. theater uh, onto the audience area. And uh, I didn't see it, but my friend whom I was with even saw a guy uh, get kind of doused with water. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure if that person was an usher or, or a, an audience member, but um uh, so then they had to try to fix that, and they, they were climbing up into the ceiling with flashlights. And uh, to make a long story short, the intermission must have turned out to be at least half an hour long. 
oh, maybe longer. Boy. And and it's a long show to begin with. So we got at got out at uh, the show started at seven, and we got out right at ten o'clock. Um, so I, I, I wish, um, that she could edit a bit. And if it were my choice, I would say the editing, uh, should be in the second part, but it is a very, very engaging story. And as I say, a lot of humor in it. She makes much of the fact that she comes from Kansas, <laughs> um, you know, and all of the, those associations we have with that, um, to, you know, to come from Leavenworth, Kansas, and then be, become this big lesbian rock star is kind of amazing uh and she is a, a very singular artist and i'm glad that i saw the show i i haven't seen it in circle but i saw it off broadway uh oh. at uh at the uh new world stages in fact uh, peter and i were sitting next to each other uh and i think that was uh peter's take on it as well uh, and it definitely was mine was that the show absolutely needed to be focused and edited and and brought down uh and narrowed uh, mm. i felt like it was uh all over the all, all over the map which absolutely happens and it's great to put it up in front of an audience um it's great to put it up in front of an audience and get that feedback. I was hoping that they really did that in between New World Stages and Circle, but it doesn't seem like they did. No, did, no. <laughs> did they play the song next Tuesday or last Tuesday or uh, Tuesday morning? That's what it's called. Do you know uh, that song? So. Uh, Melissa Etheridge, did, did they do a song list in the in the playbill? There is oh. a song list in the playbill. I am looking at it right now and... I do not see that one in it. And no, I don't remember her singing Tuesday it. morning. So Tuesday morning is uh, Melissa Etheridge's song. Uh, when, you know, when Jenna, when you were starting your review of it and you were talking about how she was trying to establish her Broadway bona fides. Um, hmm. I, I, again, I don't think that she needs to establish it because... No. Uh, because many, many of her songs are what we would think of as theatrical songs. Mm -hmm. uh, and Tuesday Morning is, uh, is a retelling of 9-11 and um. what happened on the Tuesday morning. And it's a totally, it feels like a great theater song. It's a song that they should have and could have. And absolutely, it was amazing that they didn't use and come from away, you know, uh, so, um, I, you know, I don't think that she needed to establish that. And I also felt like much of the show felt like a little bit of Hedvig, uh, when I saw it at New World Stages. Uh, so, uh, with the relationship between Hedvig and Yitzhak and, uh, Melissa and her stagehand, mm. <laughs> uh, and I thought it, I thought it was really funny and charming and, and all of it is really good stuff, but it needs to be focused. What, which direction are you going to go? And the off Broadway thing was very long, very, very long as well. So, you know, hmm. yeah. All right. So we're agreed on that. Oh, here's an interesting thing. Uh, maybe one of you can answer this before the show, there was some pre-show music. And one of the selections was of all things, Jose Feliciano singing light my fire. Hmm. Uh, yeah. And I, I, it wasn't even the Doors version. It was Jose Feliciano, and hmm. I turned to the uh, fellow 
uh, next to me. Uh, first, I asked my friend if he knew what the connection was because he knew he knows a lot about Melissa Etheridge, and he said, "I have no idea." And so I turned to the guy on the other side of me. I said, "Do you know why they're playing this song?" And he said, "No, why?" And I said, "No, I I don't know. I'm asking yeah. you." <laughs> <laughs> and he said, "And he said, I don't know. Perhaps we'll find out." But I, if the, we found out, I missed it. Um, I I don't know what that connection was. Uh, I won't do it now, but I think that I got a script from Off Broadway. I think okay. that I did. So I'll see. Did you guys get any scripts from the press rep, uh, press script, or anything like that? I didn't think so. Uh, no, right. but I think they said one was available if we asked. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. So that's uh, Melissa Etheridge, My Window at Circle in the Square. It's playing through November 19th right now, which I think is a very odd time to stop a show. <laughs> so I wonder if it'll extend through the holidays unless something else is in back of it coming in. But let me see. Is there anything else in Circle? Circle in the square. Oh, there's no, no, I just, don't think so. just, yeah. So there's nothing else scheduled at Circle in the Square. So I wouldn't be surprised if it extends through January, you know, through the first week in January when we have the clearing out of Broadway through the holiday season, uh, unless they really have ticket challenges. But it's a small show. So Small show, small theater, nothing else in back of it. So, yeah, but they, you know, they don't obviously they don't want to play to half empty houses. So, of course, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so next up, Michael, you got to see Infinite Life. So, why don't you tell us about this? Yeah, I just got there by the skin of my teeth because I believe that the show closes this weekend. And the reason I was so late to it was I was supposed to go a couple of weeks ago, but they had to cancel. Um, some shows i i'm pretty sure it was for covid um so i'm glad i finally got to it i I had wanted to see this very much if only for the cast uh mary louise burke mia kadigbach christina kirk christine nielsen brenda presley and pete simpson um as a, a friend of mine said to have christine nielsen and mary louise burke in the same show I mean, you have to go just for that. <laughs> um, so it was really, uh, I was really looking forward to it for that reason. And um, I did overall very much like the one previous play by Annie Baker that I had seen, which was The Flick. Uh, oh, yeah. And and she, I guess, uh, among other things, is famous for writing in I suppose you would call it a hyper-realistic style, um, including many, many long pauses within the dialogue. Uh, That was certainly the case with the flick and also the case here with Infinite Life, which the setting here is that there are um, five women uh, and one man uh, who are in a uh, some kind of a clinic in Northern California. It's just two hours north of San Francisco, and it's set in the pretty much the present day, May 2019. And they are all at this clinic, which um, helps people uh, treat chronic pain uh, through fasting. Uh, and uh, so, so that's the thing that they all have in common. 
Uh, and much of the play is, is is just them talking among themselves with lots and lots of pauses. I I I've, I I felt the same thing with the flick. I think uh, that I really like that the use of that technique, and it does um, often make it seem like uh, uh, we really are hearing actual people actually talk to each other in the real world. I just think it's overused uh, because people don't always talk that way. I mean, if you think of a, a group of people sitting together on a patio as they are here, there are going to be times when there are long pauses and nobody says anything. But then there are other times, many other times when that doesn't happen and people are just conversing in at a normal speed and with one comment following another or uh, a question being answered immediately, et cetera, et cetera. So I just wish, uh, my personal wish for Annie Baker is that she she uh, could address that and maybe not have so many pauses for so long um, throughout, throughout her plays. Um, this one has only only a few moments, I would say, when people are, are talking at a normal pace. Um, so I, I don't know if anyone agrees with me, but that's what I think. Um, I also wonder, what is it like to direct a play like this? How, 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 um, how specific in the writing and the direction, uh, how specific are the pauses? Uh, do the writer and or the director, do, do they really stay on the actors and say, no, I'm sorry, you didn't wait long enough to say that line. I, I wonder, um, because also it it affects the running time of the, of the play, uh, I'm sure, from night to night. Uh, when I got to uh, the theater at this show at the Atlantic Theater Company down on 20th Street, there was a sign that it said that the show is at an hour and 45 minutes uh, with no intermission. But it really was just about two hours. And I actually asked someone of the staff, I said, why, I said, why do they, you know, why aren't they more honest about the running time? And, and, and the person said like the very correctly, which I hadn't thought of that, that in the case of this show, it really can vary greatly, um, from night to night as the, uh, actors and actresses, um, pause maybe a little more or a little less from from night to night so yeah. i would i would love to sit through a rehearsal <laughs> of an annie baker play uh this one as i may have mentioned was directed by james mcdonald um the flick had been directed by david cromer so it's not even the same director um i'm fascinated by that question and i i if anyone knows if 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 Annie Baker has ever spoken about this, or or James McDonald, or David Cromer, I would love it uh, if any of our listeners can shed light on that question for me. Um, so that's uh, one of the main things I thought. I um, I like the way that uh, Baker sometimes uses these pauses for comic effect. I think she, she's uh, very good at that, and that's seems like it might be quite a difficult thing to do but there is a lot of humor in this play in addition to um uh the moments when it becomes more serious uh, i i'm not sure that i that i got the whole point of it after i saw uh 
the play, I then read Jesse Green's review in the New York Times, and I think he got it a little bit more than I did. Um, and one thing he mentioned that that actually sheds light on this subject is that the uh, initial title of this play was supposed to have been on the uses of pain for life. Mm. And I think that's uh, maybe she changed that because she thought it was a little bit too on the nose. But I think that makes it a little clear because there's a lot of discussion about the various ailments that these women and this one man have. Um, but then there's also uh, quite a bit of discussion of, of sexual matters. And then at one point, it seems like um, sex is very much going to happen. Absolutely, between one of the women and the man, and then uh, I won't tell you whether or not it it does happen. Uh, but uh, so uh, so Jesse Green wrote, understanding suffering like understanding desire may help us when we face it or when others do, and with any luck afterward. So I, I guess that's it. And as I say, I guess maybe he he clued into it. Uh, a little better than I did. I, I didn't quite uh, get the point so clearly, uh, but I still enjoyed it because of the writing and the acting and the directing. <laughs> um, and I'm glad I saw it. It sounds very similar to the flick. I haven't seen uh, Infinite Window. Um, Infinite Life. Infinite Life, excuse me. Uh, I haven't seen Infinite Life, but. Um, you know, the uh, these pauses seem to be present in the flick. And as you mentioned, the other work there, and it's very Pinteresque uh, in, in the way in which uh, pauses are used there. That's interesting about, you know, uh, after a show opens, it's kind of the responsibility of the stage manager to, you know, keep it in the form that the director intended after opening night. So right, I but wonder... that must be, but what I'm saying is that must be so difficult. No, no, absolutely. When, I'm totally in, agreeing. In this case, when, yeah. you know, so many, I, I wonder, like, I mean, did somebody say, all right, now I want you to count to 35 after that line. <laughs> you know, I wonder, I, I just don't know. All right, so that is the Atlantic Theater Company's production of Infinite Life at the Linda Gross. It's uh, playing through October 14th, so there's only a few days left here this week to see it, if you can. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Jenna and Michael also got a chance to see Jaja's African, African hair braiding. So, uh, Jenna, why don't you start us off on that? Sure, sure. Thank you. Yeah, Jocelyn Bio is finally on Broadway, uh, which is very happy news to anyone who enjoyed uh, Schoolgirls or Nollywood Dreams or Merry Wives at the Delacorte. Uh, like those plays, Jaja's African Hair Braiding focuses on African women and their relationships with each other and with the men in their lives and their hopes and dreams. Uh, the play will draw inevitable comparisons to Steel Magnolias, since, like that play, this one is also set in a hair salon, but uh, those comparisons uh, are really superficial. Bio's play focuses on the women who work in the braiding salon as uh, business professionals. They are freelancers competing with one another for clients. They're negotiating prices outside so that nobody knows how much money they make. and. Over the course of the play, 
uh, which covers about 12 hours in a 90-minute runtime. We learn all about their goals as career women and as wives and as mothers, so that we end up with a cast of surprisingly complex and three-dimensional characters for just a 90-minute play. Uh, she really is able to pull that together very quickly. Uh, the characters come from different countries across Africa. The play is set in Harlem. Uh, but according to the script, the characters come from Senegal, Nigeria, Sierra Leone, from Ghana, and uh, Bio and director Whitney White. They make sure each character has a very distinct voice and style of speaking, which really serves to remind us how far they've traveled, how much they've accomplished already. Uh, and there are also a number of Black American characters, so we see how the different women connect with one another despite their very different backgrounds. Uh, the play is, for the most part, a comedy. The cast of 10 does a great job getting laughs from the audience, sometimes in the things they say, but also in their reactions to what other characters say. Uh, Rachel Christopher plays an American woman who spends the entire day in the shop getting micro braids. <laughs> she doesn't have an awful lot to say, but her reactions to all the drama and melodrama going on around her are just absolutely priceless. Uh, priceless. They say the best acting is reacting and <laughs> Bio's script and White's direction give all of the women plenty of opportunities to really prove that. Uh, the whole cast works just wonderfully together. It's really easy to believe that these women have been friends and colleagues for a very long time. Uh, two women, uh, Colleen Coleman and Lakeisha May, play six of the salon's customers. Uh, they do wonderful work making each character distinct, even as they you know, will frequently enter the shop as one character just a few minutes after they exited as another one. Uh, Dominique Thorne is a real standout as Marie, uh, the bookish college-bound daughter of the shop owner who is under a lot of pressure in a lot of different ways, and she is just trying to get through the day as all this drama unfolds around her. Uh, a lot of the humor comes from Zenzi Williams as the very gossipy bee, and I'm really hoping I don't mispronounce this name, Mechi Aranawa as, no, Aranwa as the very competitive up-and-comer Indidi, and their efforts to one-up one another but when the mood turns more serious, they also convey a lot of compassion and care to balance out the comedy. Um, Michael Oloyede plays all of the men in the play. Mm -hmm. He does a wonderful job making each one of them distinctive. Uh, three of the men are street vendors, and he does a really wonderful job just conveying their their grit and their determination and also their charm. I mean, these guys are working just as hard as the women are to make ends meet. And the characters never come across as stereotypes or cliches, even when they're only on stage for a few moments for each one of them. Uh, Nikia Mathis's wigs. Uh, I kind of hope they'll get some special awards in the spring 
because I have no idea how she was able to make it look like characters had hours worth of braiding done <laughs> in a split second blackout. Uh, you know, understandably, given the setting, the character's hair is a major part of the action. And she makes each wig and each design part of the story and part of the character. So I really hope, yeah. Are, are there many awards for wig design? I, there should be. And <laughs> I really hope she's remembered in the spring. Uh, David Zinzet's and Ji Yun Chang's lighting do a lot to not only set the scene, but also establish backstory. When this salon first rotated into view, the audience was cheering like the barricade in Les Mis just appeared. Uh, it was just so immediately recognizable. This was a store decorated tastefully on a budget by people who are working too hard to do much else. All the little details are there. I heard so many murmurs of recognition around me. And Chang's light really do a lot to make it seem like 12 hours go by over the course of the, uh, of those 90 minutes. Um, one thing I really liked about this play and everything that I've seen of Bios uh, so far for that matter is that it is not a story about black women's suffering. Uh, you know, so many writers over the centuries have focused on black pain and not unreasonably. So it's just wonderful to have stories about black women celebrating their triumphs and finding joy in their friendships and their victories and working together and supporting each other. The characters in the play are struggling against unfair odds and they have their problems, but the story doesn't focus on their suffering. And that it's just wonderful to see when uh, Jaja, who's uh, played by Somi Kakoma, finally arrives toward the end of the play, and really for a while, it felt like she was going to be Godot or Lefty. Um, <laughs> she literally has everyone in the shop dancing in celebration before she launches into this wonderful, defiant monologue that just stops the show in the best possible way. The audience was cheering while she was talking. It was this wonderful moment, uh, just really thrilling to be there. Uh, B.O. is a really delightful voice. I hope this play uh, gets her more attention, and I hope this play gets her other plays, which are equally wonderful, uh, gets them done at many more theaters around the country. Uh, I really wholeheartedly recommend the show. I hope it sells out. Okay, Michael, what did you think? Well, the reviews have been magnificent. So that's a good sign, right? <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's uh, this is one of those plays where uh, that takes kind of how would you say old tropes, old situations, old setups, and makes them seem extremely fresh mm -hmm. uh, because we're dealing with a, a different group of people than we've ever seen before. Uh, I remember how. Uh, when in the Heights open, people said, well, if you think about it, it's a lot like Fiddler on the Roof, <laughs> um, you know, just showing the way these different people in this sort of uh, close community or, or uh, very close knit community of people who are more or less like each other, um, how they 
deal with each other, their interpersonal relationships and their their sorrows and their joys from, from mm-hmm. day to day. And, and uh, Jenny, you mentioned, of course, the obvious comparison uh, that someone might think to compare Jaja's African hair braiding to steel magnolias, uh, but that's only the most obvious right. uh, example of another workplace, you know, comedy, <laughs> I guess you could co- call it that. Um, uh, you know, it's interesting to compare Jaja's to Glen Gary, Glen Ross, oh. uh, you know, I mean, you know, which is very different in many ways, but uh, just the way people react to each other when they're in a work environment and how, how much their uh, personal lives inform that or not. Uh, it, it, uh, it's just something that occurred to me. I, I really loved this play. I thought it was hilarious um, for like the first 80 minutes or so mm-hmm. of its 90 minute late. I, and I, I, and that's what I want to focus on. I actually wanted to phrase it as a, a question um, for you, Jenna, uh, yeah. uh, because it, uh, I would say that the first 80 minutes really are, are almost entirely humorous. There, there is nothing really serious that happens. Um, and then in the last 10 minutes, something very, very, very serious happens. And some people, um, who have seen this play objected to that U-turn, really? uh, Yes, um, saying that it, you know, that it seemed like it came out of nowhere because it wasn't prepared for. And there are two ways. There are two ways to look at that, aren't there? I mean, yes. um, If you look at Fiddler on the Roof, uh, there are serious moments throughout the the first act uh, and the first part of the second act that do, I guess, quote unquote, prepare you for what happens at the end, which is very, mm-hmm. very dark and very serious. Um, and, and many people would say, well, that's, you know, that's a good, that's good playwriting uh, to sort of prepare an audience that way. So it doesn't come out of nowhere. But on the other hand, life isn't really like that, is it? I mean, you know, you can, things can be going along like really, really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with no problems whatsoever, and everybody's happy, and then suddenly something horrible can happen. Uh, so I'm not sure that it's a flaw of this play. I absolutely. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean yeah, to cut you no, off. No, no, no. Please tell me, because I, I, I'd like to hear what no, you think. I completely agree with you, and also I would point out the the final ten minutes are foreshadowed throughout the. Yes. Rest of the play. I mean, B.O. structures the play very well and very deliberately. So there are breadcrumbs that are dropped throughout the play about, you know, what we're going to learn about characters. So much of the play is character development. We're focusing on learning about each of these women and their backstories. And even we're learning about Jaja, even though she isn't there for most of the play. And, you know, she paces it and I, I think she drops those breadcrumbs very effectively. So no, I disagree. I don't think it comes out of nowhere at all. But you're right. Life does sometimes come out of nowhere. And sometimes there isn't foreshadowing. Um, right, right. Yes. And uh, yeah, as you say, there are breadcrumbs that uh, the just little things that are mentioned mm-hmm. that when you in retrospect, when you look back and you and you think, oh, you know, that ending was foreshadowed. But when it's happening, 
you don't think, oh my God, something terrible might happen. Uh, and so I, uh, I, I think that's really good playwriting. I also love the fact that Jaja doesn't even make her presence uh, felt. Uh, she doesn't enter until well mm-hmm. into the play. Uh, I would say th- three quarters of the way in, maybe even later. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, and so, so there's that anticipation. I was like, are we going to see her at all? You know? <laughs> um, so I, I, I really think that this is a wonderful, wonderful playwright. And I certainly hope and, uh, look forward to seeing more from her. Absolutely. Well, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. You know, someone should make that into a musical. Hmm. <laughs> All right. So next up, that I should say, wrapped it up by saying that's Manhattan Theater Club's production of Jaja's African Hair Braiding at the Samuel J. Friedman Theater. It's uh, playing through November 5th, 2023. So next up, uh, Michael, mm-hmm. you got to see the Emerging Artist Theater production of Doris Day, My Secret Love. Was Doris Day your secret love? Well, I do love Doris Day, so that's <laughs> who doesn't. <laughs> that's one of the main reasons I went. I have <laughs> extremely mixed feelings about this show, so let me um, give the bad news first. Um, I think that, uh, well, the whole setup is is very very schematic. We're supposed to think that it's a. Um, a retrospective evening uh, tribute to Doris Day that's being held somewhere later in her life. Uh, And she is on stage talking to the audience about her life throughout. And uh, um, someone has selected uh, photos from her life to use as slide projections, uh, you know, to show during during the show uh, uh, to show her family and and her ex-husbands and etc cetera, etc cetera. uh but the thing is uh, to begin with you just have to either uh, say to yourself i'm going to just check my disbelief at the door um cuz if you don't do that you're not going to like this because Doris Day was famously very 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 private and she would never ever have done anything like that um so they that's just a concept that uh, Paul Adams who wrote this piece came up with uh, in order to tell the story um i i don't know how he could have well, I mean, there are other ways he could have told it, um, and he decided not to. Uh, this is the easiest way, but I don't think it's true to life at all. And um, because of that setup, the actual lines um, are very, very much um, on the nose. And also, uh, there's so much exposition as Darstay basically recites facts from her life that sometimes sound like they're taken just from a Wikipedia entry. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a lot of negative, uh, I will say. Um, but I would say the performance of this woman named Tiffin Borelli as Doris Day is really quite wonderful, including her. Um, she must have worked very, very hard 
to emulate Doris's vocal delivery. Uh, mm-hmm. She had a very unique uh, way of singing. Uh, she she's famous for she could use this very feather light vibrato um, that Tiffin Borelli really manages to give a, a very good approximation of that. And also um, the way she would bend notes. Uh, it's uh, I don't really have the, um, the musical vocabulary to describe it any more than that. But let me just say that I think she did a wonderful vocal impersonation of her. And uh, she's very engaging as she uh, goes through all of this exposition about Doris Day's life. And also, um, there it's not a one-person show. There is one other person, and that other person is amazing. His name is David Beck, um, and he plays Les Brown and others. Uh, he initially is on stage as, as we're supposed to think that Doris is narrating her life and that Les Brown, um, the famous band leader, uh, is on stage with her at the piano. Uh, and playing for her so that she, you know, she sings snatches of songs throughout the evening. Um, so he's less brown at first, but then he winds up appearing as all of her husbands, uh, her father, uh, and several other people in her life. And he does all of this with acting that's absolutely 100% wonderful, uh, in addition to actually playing the piano. Uh, so, <laughs> I mean, I think he's absolutely an, an equal partner in this show, uh, which is really saying something because she does such a wonderful job, but he is right there with her. And I, I don't think it would be difficult. I, I don't think it would be easy to find someone to replace him. Um, so I, you know, I hope they have a good understudy, <laughs> um, uh, in, uh, you know, set up, uh, on that note, um, I know they had to cancel a couple of performances uh, mm. for some reason. So they may have, they may not have understudies for either of these people. Uh, this uh, piece is playing in repertory with two other plays um, that have nothing to do with it. One is called Anne Being Frank, uh, and one is called Sex Work Sex Play. And they are all three are productions of the Emerging Artists Theater at the Tada Space on 28th Street. Um, so I, um, if you can, uh, if you can get by the the huge reservations that I mentioned, I, I would still say that it's very much worth seeing this piece, Doris Day, My Secret Love, because um, the performances uh, were so great and so wonderful that they really overrode the the negatives that i mentioned and and also um even though it it is full of exposition you know that that's not good from a dramatic standpoint but i learned so much about doris day that i did not know and i should also mention without giving too much away that um um this tribute, uh, this retrospective uh, at which she is supposed to be appearing is supposed to be, we eventually find out it's supposed to be happening at the time when her dear friend and co-star Rock Hudson is in the hospital dying of AIDS. Mm. 
And uh, let me just say that that fits into the narrative in a very, very moving way. Uh, I don't want to give away any more than that. Um, so that's my take on Doris Day, my secret love. Okay. Uh, also, you got over to musicals in Mufti to see Golden Rainbow. So tell us what you thought about that. And I got to the very last performance of that. And that was because they had a problem where they had to cancel, um, I believe, one performance in the first weekend. The Mufti shows only run for two two weeks, two two weekends, basically. Um, so there's not a lot of performances to begin with. And they had to cancel one on the first weekend because Max von Essen, who played the male lead, uh, was uh, had some kind of illness they didn't specify so he was out and then actually um one other performance that first weekend they wound up doing anyway because they had the 85 year old composer <laughs> and lyricist walter marks play that role uh and people who were there say it was obviously a one-of-a-kind experience uh so uh that's what you got to see if you saw if you saw that performance. But I um, got to see Max von Essen on the closing night, and he was really, really terrific um, in this role. It's a Golden Rainbow. Oh gosh! Um, to make a long story short, it's based. Uh, it's a musical based on the film A Hole in the Head, uh, which I think maybe was before it was a film. I think maybe it was a, a book. Um, and the musical is about is set in Las Vegas, and it's about this fellow who runs a uh, a, a casino showroom kind of a place. Uh, and he's a single dad, and he has his son Ali with him, and his wife has died a few years before. Uh, but it turns out that he's not a very good father. Many people would say in some ways, and so um, the boy's aunt uh, comes to kind of insert herself in this situation and see if she can take care of the boy and, and uh, counteract the negative influence of his dad. Um, So that's, that's what it's about. And the the show originally starred Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet, um, that famous performing couple when it was on Broadway. Uh, It was considered very much a second or third or even fourth rate musical in its time, but you know how things happen. Um, I think now it's it people look back on that score and the and the show and the book and say you know it really wasn't that bad. <laughs> uh, and that certainly was evidence here although it's not fair to judge completely because there's been a lot of rewriting by Walter Marks. Um he added I think I think I read that he added seven songs and cut a few. Uh but he did keep the ones that uh, most people would know and love from the original, the title song. Um, there's a song called He Needs Me Now, uh, another one called We Got Us. And the most famous song is I've Gotta Be Me, uh, which became a standalone hit for uh, Steve Lawrence. Uh, so, uh, and I think a lot of people don't even know that that song was from a Broadway musical, but it certainly was. Um, anyway, uh, Mufti did a great job with it, with a great cast uh including uh jonathan brody nick searley robert cuccioli uh felipe barboza mara davi played the aunt judy uh danielle lee graves greaves uh jillian louis louis or lewis gina milo 
uh, before I mentioned Max von Essen, Maria Wearies, and uh, in a show-stopping performance as young Ali, Benjamin Pajak, who mm-hmm. scored a huge triumph when he played Oliver in Oliver, and then was also uh, a critic's darling, and rightly so, when he played Winthrop in the recent Music Man. Mm-hmm. And now this is his the third um the third uh, a jewel in his triple crown uh, for the time being, uh, just really so endearing and with a beautiful voice, which, um, uh, you know, I, I was, I kept joking. Well, you know, it's probably going to change in about 10 minutes. So <laughs> uh, I, uh, I hope um, after he, his, he goes through um, puberty, uh, I hope his, his voice uh, remains as lovely as it is now because uh, he's, he's really the real deal. And everyone I know who has seen him in any or all of those shows absolutely adores him. Uh, I, I certainly do. Um, the production was directed and choreographed by Stuart Ross, uh, who did a wonderful job, you know, under the minimalist circumstances of the musicals in Mufti. Um, they're really kind of, stage concerts is probably the best way to to uh, put it and david hancock turner uh was the musical director and he did a a yeoman job as well so um like i said i got in there under the wire and i'm not sure i i won't get into it because uh i don't even know the original version that well although i do have the original cast album uh so i won't get into uh trying to enumerate the rewrites and and talk to you about all those i it seemed to me that uh, a lot of them were not necessary. And in particular, there was an introduction of a new, very, very uh, major character that I don't think that subplot worked very well. Uh, So I kind of wish they had just done the original, but I'm I'm still glad I got to see this and enjoy those songs that that I do know so well from that cast album. Okay, so that wraps it up for this week. Before we get on to trivia at our musical moments, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts. We go into the front page of BroadwayVideo.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'd be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get us. You can support us and get us on Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash Broadway Radio, and support all of Broadway Radio's offerings, as well as get our podcasts earlier than anybody else. You can listen to us on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Tuner, TuneIn, Pandora, Google Play, which is now going to become YouTube Music, um, all those different ways to get us. Contact information for Jenna, for Michael, and for me can be found on the show notes at broadwayradio.com with links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? In this Tony-winning musical from last century, this Tony-nominated performer played a character who was in love, but not for long, with the young lass. Her character's first name was spelled the same is this performer's actual last name? Well, that's Raul Julia, that's J-U-L-I-A, played Proteus, initially in love with Julia, J-U-L-I-A, in the 1971-72 Tony-winning Two Gentlemen of Verona. Tony Janicki was the first to get it, followed by Paul Witte, Josh Israel, Mike Meany, Arthur Robinson, Deb Popple, Brigadude, Sean Logan, Jack Leshner, Isaac Blevins, and Juliet Green. All right, this week's. When she starred in a Broadway musical, 
Her leading man was an actor who had won an Oscar. When she repeated her role in the film version, her leading man was yet a different actor, and yet he had won an Oscar too, but for a different film. Who was she, the two Oscar winners, and the musical? Okay. If you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. Let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what do we have in this week's musical moment? Well, like many of our listeners, I attended the Broadway flea market. And uh, I got some wonderful stuff there. Uh, But not only that, believe it or not, the same day, uh, there was a book and CD and DVD exchange here at Manhattan Plaza, where I live. So I got some free stuff there uh, because they just have this thing where you bring whatever books, DVDs, CDs, whatever that you don't want anymore, and you take whatever you want (laughs) uh, from what people drop off there. So so I had a really great day (laughs) last Sunday. And two of the things I got... um, I uh these were happened to be CDs. Uh I really cherish these uh um and actually I, I didn't know about either of these albums beforehand but one is a compilation of Kate Smith uh who really was a very very popular singer back in the day starting in I guess starting in the 40s maybe the 30s and going uh, right up through the 60s and 70s um and she really, uh, she was most famous for her recording of God Bless America. Uh, that became her personal anthem. Uh, also, s- some other songs that, sh- that she was famous for. And uh, she had a beautiful, very unusual voice um, that had, it kind of had, had the brass of Ethel Merman almost, but with a, a sweeter and smoother sound. Uh, and also, a, a, you know, a, a higher extension uh into like sort of almost into the soprano register so she could sing really anything and if you get used to her style being so old-fashioned quote unquote i think you will recognize her as one of the great great singers that we've ever had um and then the other cd i bought was a, a a recording of a live performance that patula clark gave in Norfolk, Virginia in May 2001 for the Virginia Arts Festival. Uh, Petula was a guest on our podcast uh, last year, I believe it was. And she has always been one of my all-time favorites. So I was delighted to find this live performance recording, which I think must be very rare. Um, So our opening selection is Kate Smith singing Riding High which was written for Red Hot and Blue, uh, in which it was introduced by Ethel Merman. And uh, and that is by Cole Porter. Uh, and the closer is Petula Clark, uh, one of her live performances from this concert in Norfolk, Virginia in May 2001. And it is I Dreamed a Dream from Les Miserables. And the interesting thing here is she mentions before she starts singing the song that it was originally written in French. Uh, And so she sings most of it in English, but then when she gets to the end, she reverts into French for the last, for the last few lines, I would say. Uh, So that, those are our two uh, kind of unusual selections for this 
week, and I hope you enjoy them both. All right. So on behalf of Jenna Tessa Fox and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. As they turn your dream to shame He slept a summer by my side He filled my days with endless wonder He took my childhood in his stride But he was gone when autumn